Let's say that all those things our parents told us when we were youngsters. Now, that's assuming you had parents, of course. I shouldn't make that assumption. I was raised in a two-parent home as a privileged, rhythmless asshole that I am. And I could have gone on to be a ref who couldn't keep time either, but I didn't. Instead, I'm doing this podcast. But let's just say you did have parents, and they told you that the most important thing in life is to try, and that's all that matters. Well, pretend that that's true and that it's not a load of shit that losers tell you. If effort counts as a victory, well then, Isaac Okoro, you won tonight. And Evan Mobley, you won tonight. And Darius Garland, you sure as hell won tonight, and so did you, Karis. In fact, the whole starting lineup won tonight. JB, you lost tonight. But the whole starting lineup won tonight. Now, there was another lesson that my parents bestowed upon me. One was try your hardest, of course, as I mentioned. The second was be on time. Because punctuality is the ultimate show of respect. To show up late is to disrespect the people who are waiting upon you. Now, I don't know how she would feel about showing up early, like, oh, I don't know, four and a half seconds when you were supposed to arrive at five seconds. But I look at it as disrespect. And Isaac Okoro had his perfect game disrespected by the NBA and their rhythmless, tempoless, gutless, feckless, sackless ref. Tell me, how difficult is this? One and two and four and two and two and four and three and four. How hard is that? How hard is that? Just stay on tempo. Oh, two hands. That'll bring the house down. Three on the way. Good. Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I am your host, lifelong Cavs fan, voice of Fox Sports Radio, Bob Schmidt. We should be celebrating today. And there is plenty to celebrate still. I know there are those of you out there in the Cavs fandom who are glass half full type of people. And that is a great quality to have. I, too, wish that I could focus on just the positives, block out the negatives, be that kind of glass half-full person, but it just, it feels like my cup runneth over with, well, not optimism. Drink this homeless guy's urine. It feels like a glass full of piss. I'm not going to lie. So there are things to celebrate, yes, but I will be touching on the negatives too. Let's begin with the positives, or at least let me start down that path before I careen into the rage spiral that is inevitable to come. Isaac Okoro, on this night, put forth a perfect game. Six for six from the floor. Four for four from three-point land. 17 points. And these three-point shots he hit, they were big. They were big because we found ourselves in a gigantic hole in the second quarter as the Cavaliers let the Grizzlies go on a 20-0 run. But they fought, and they clawed, and they got back into this game. And despite the fact that in the second quarter, they found themselves trailing 60 to 41, they cut that lead on a 20 to 8 run of their own that was mostly led by Karis LeVert and Darius Garland after they came back into the game in the second quarter. They scored 17 of the 20 points in that 20 to 8 run. The other three were from an Okoro three, and they cut that lead down to seven points. Now, we went into the second half, we got a much more balanced effort. 
few things changed from the first half to the second half. The first is that we recognized very early on that two people on the bench were playing objectively horribly. And that was Kevin Love, who tonight was one for six from the field, one for five from three-point land. He did manage to get fouled once on a three-pointer. That was a good play, I suppose. But on the month, he's now seven for 41 from beyond the arc, which is good for 17%. Jetty Osman, zero points and one incredibly stupid foul where he tried to do that thing where he lets a guy go by him and then reaches around behind and tries to poke the ball out. But it was in the lane. It was, of course, a foul. And I knew this man is going to get a short hook. But it ended up being a good thing because our starting unit was very good tonight. Yes, Okoro put forth a perfect line. 17 points, three rebounds, two blocks, four three-pointers. Magnificent game from him. Now, here's some cool news that came out of this game. This was the ninth game that Isaac has played in this calendar year since the clock struck midnight on December 31st. And in that span of time, he is averaging nine points, four rebounds, and 63% from three-point land. And we all know Isaac started the season terrible. He missed his first 12 three-pointers in the first 12 games. If you look at that point forward, after his incredibly cold start, he is shooting 39.5% from outside the arc since then. So his season numbers are almost identical at this point to last season. Last season, he shot 48% from the field, 35% from three. He is now up to 47.5% from the field and 34.4% from three. I probably would have brought him back in the fourth quarter even sooner, as long as I'm going to question JB decisions. Why not say that a coral should have went wall to wall there? Because his defense was definitely necessary to try to slow down Ja. And he was on Dylan Brooks a lot of the time, which credit to him, Brooks was terrible. Four for 12, missed everything. Outside of one notable blunder I can remember from a coral, he was shading a bit too much towards the lane and they were able to find Bain camping out behind him for a corner three that he hit. Outside of that singular play, Okoro was impactful defensively, start to finish. Huge game. Definitely felt like the biggest one of this season. And outside of that Phoenix game where he dropped 32 points and won 10 for 16 from the floor, keep in mind, that one came in a big loss. It wasn't a very competitive game. This came on a huge national stage against a true contender. And Levert, too, for that matter. Levert's getting to the point where you just have to take him out of trade discussions. I don't know what we think we're going to find that's going to do what he did tonight. 24 points, 4 rebounds, 6 assists. And after they gave up that 20-0 run to the Grizzlies, Karis Levert accounted for 12 points by himself in the second quarter. He was the one who turned the tide and got the Cavs back into this game, believing that they could overcome that terrible stretch of bench play that they saw. So now he's giving us 14 points, four rebounds, three assists, and doing it on 47-41 splits in the month of January. And now we have a big enough sample that we have seen every single month Karis Levert has increased his efficiency from the floor. 33% in October, 40% in November, 43% in December. And so far, in just nine games, 47.4% from the floor in January. His free throws are heading in the opposite direction, 82, 75, 70, and now 67%. So that's troubling. But the best indicator of efficiency would be true shooting percentage, and this is far and away his best month of the year at 57.4%. You crack 60%, you are a very high-end NBA player. So Karis Levert is creeping upwards, and if this trend continues, 
we're not going to want to even discuss the idea of moving him. We're going to be impatient to kick off extension talks. The second man who deserves a lot of credit is Evan Mobley. Now, his final stat line, very impressive. 18 points, 15 rebounds, 2 blocks, 9 for 15 from the floor, but a couple of caveats. 10 of those points came in the fourth quarter. Two of those blocks came in the fourth quarter. It was a period in which he was going back and forth with big possessions against the Memphis Grizzlies, where he was matching what I think many people would view as the top two candidate for Defensive Player of the Year in Jaron Jackson Jr., who found himself in foul trouble. And outside of some turnover issues with Evan Mobley, many of which came early in the game, later in the game, I thought the kind of aggression he showed, 15 field goal attempts, that is quite a night. Seven in the fourth quarter. A lot of times that takes him an entire game. So for him to almost match the number of shots that Darius Garland took, the people craving a higher usage of Evan Mobley have to feel pretty good because he produced against a very good defense despite the end result. Jaron Jackson Jr., long, rangy, great shot blocker, excellent weak side help guy, good anticipatory defender, and Steven Adams, just a bull, a very physical guy. But I thought that the Cavs' front court held their own between the two Cavalier bigs. They got 32 points 23 rebounds, 9 offensive rebounds. Jared Allen did some work on the offensive glass tonight. Now, unfortunately, Jared Allen was involved in a very controversial call, or lack thereof, at the end of the game. And that came on a play where he was whistled for a blocking foul as John Moran came over a high screen and barreled into what appeared to be a pretty stationary Jared Allen. Now, I will say this. This is not a popular sentiment. There were... I think what we would say, three very questionable calls that had an impact on the game. One of them was in the third quarter, when Lamar Stevens, coming from the weak side, elevated, blocked a shot against Zaire Williams, as clean as could be, and was called for a foul. But because it was the third quarter, and because this is what JB does, he did not use a challenge. Then, the fourth quarter rolls around, and we have that blocking call. On Jared Allen. Now, me personally, I know many people there said, okay, let's use the challenge here. I was still okay with JB not using it there. I wanted him to use it on the Lamar Stevens one because I thought that was absolutely a winnable challenge. And I've said kind of throughout the course of the season, I vacillate. I'm not one of these people who says, you got to keep it in your pocket in case you need it. Because as far as I'm concerned, giving up two points in the third quarter and giving up two points in the fourth quarter. The thing that would determine when I use it is how confident I am that I can win it. I don't want to give up free points at any point, especially in a close game. It was neck and neck after halftime to the end of the game. So I wanted him to use it when Lamar Stevens got called for the blocking foul on what was a clean block. But on the Jared Allen one, I thought he moved just enough. His feet were pretty stationary, but I thought he leaned his hip a little bit and Morant To his credit, he just barreled into him. He forced them to have to make a call one way or another, and they sided with the superstar, John Morant. If we had challenged that, could we have won? Maybe. I know there's people who believe we could have. I don't. I think we would have lost that. I had no problem with him not challenging that. But herein lies the problem. If you didn't use your challenge in either situation, you still had your timeout, and at the end of the game, you had two chances to use it. One on the five-second inbounding violation, when you saw Isaac was in trouble, when you saw he was approaching the five count, you could have called the timeout there. Or 
on the final possession where as much as I loved Darius Garland's like big ball approach to the game tonight, tip your cap, Triple J got the better of him on that drive to the rim. He wanted to ISO a defensive juggernaut. And Jaron Jackson Jr. won that final drive to the rim on Darius. And then the final possession between Bain and Brooks, they walled him in close enough that it gave Brooks a chance to recover and get the block. So not the way you want the game to end, but I can't sit here and say I didn't love the hero ball for most of the game because I did. I thought Darius was amazing, but in the end, they keyed on him and we didn't have any alternate plan. Even on that final play, we buried Levert and Okoro in the same corner. One was on the right elbow and one was on the right corner. And if anything, it reinforced the idea that maybe we needed to take a timeout and set a better play than that because there was nobody on the left elbow for any type of relief option for Darius. There was Jared Allen streaking to the rim with Adams dropping back to be able to break up any kind of pass and Evan Mobley buried in the far left corner and not in an angle where anybody could have hit him with a pass. I don't mind losing games on missed shots, but when you don't even get that final opportunity and to have two chances at a possession robbed from the Cavs in the five-second call and then in Garland not being able to get off a clean look, for that final shot. It stinks. I'm not going to lie. It stinks because it is not an easy task for them to dig out of that 20-0 Grizz run in the second quarter, but they did it. And Lavert balled out in the first half. And I think we've seen this with both of our superstar guards and Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. But generally speaking, when one is playing without the other, they seem to play a bit freer, a bit more unleashed, a bit more confident. They're hunting more. They're not as deferential, which is understandable. I mean, you want to balance the attacking of both. You want to keep them as fresh as possible. But in the second half, despite Darius Garland not having the best numbers, his creation was top-notch. He had eight of his assists in the second half on an evening where he gave us 24 points, five rebounds, 14 assists, a couple of steals, and limited his turnovers to only two. And don't look now, but this Donovan Mitchell absence has allowed Darius Garland to give us 30 and 24 in back-to-back nights. His monthly averages are now up to 22, 4, and 9. And the percentages are great. He's shooting nearly 41% from outside the arc. So definitely a feather in his cap as he tries to put together some sort of resume to make the All-Star game as a reserve. And maybe if there is a silver lining to Donovan Mitchell's injury, it's that he might have a buddy join him in Salt Lake. Because if Darius can keep this up, I mean, it would have been big if it came in a victory. But depending on how long Mitchell is out for, and those groin strains can linger, Darius has a shot. Mobley had turnover problems tonight. Darius Garland did not. Mobley's handle does have to get a little bit tighter. But I did think it was a step forward tonight to see that he got to play a little bit more aggressively, and he'll improve those things if he works on them more. He's so unselfish at times that it makes you wonder when he's going to get those game situations which allow him to operate in kind of higher pressure scenarios where people know that he's going to attack them, where he has to put the ball on the floor. Now, there was a point late in the game, he missed the shot, but Evan Mobley went right at Jaron Jackson Jr. because he had five personal fouls and attacked him in the lane. He did not get the call, but I loved the play. And I loved when Darius Garland did it to get him his fifth foul. It was a brilliant move to just wave off the screen and go right at the guy. Now. You can't keep going back to the well on a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr. because he'll adapt. And that's what happened on that final drive to the rim that he blocked on Darius Garland. But I hope even with the loss, Mobley takes away from this game that he has it in him 
to assert himself in that way. This was a game that was going to get a lot of national headlines. If the Cavs had been the team to go into Memphis and break their streak without Donovan Mitchell behind such a transcendent effort from Isaac Okoro and a great showcase game for Evan Mobley, for all the people who say, well, he hasn't taken the leap that we need him to. 18 and 15 and doing it against perhaps the defensive player of the year. I mean, people will still take notice. It doesn't discount all those things. But what's going to lead the conversation tomorrow is how the end of this game transpired. And unfortunately, there's no way to sugarcoat what was horrible timeout management by JB. We already kind of went through it. I try not to pile on JB because a lot of times I do feel like our criticisms are focused around, okay, love sucked. Why doesn't he pull him out? Or or, he didn't play Jetty and we lost the game and maybe he could have helped. It's on these hypothetical situations. It's on these unknown things, things that you couldn't anticipate. But in my view, the things that he screwed up tonight are very avoidable things. You want to sit on the first challenge? Fine. You want to sit on the second challenge even? Fine. But you're doing that for a purpose so that you have a timeout and to not even use it at the end of the game. Those are the kind of mistakes that I can't give him a pass on. I think you could go back through the history of this podcast and you'll feel that I am I'm fairly lenient when it comes to JB because in my view, it's always sort of been, well, players, generally speaking, win the game. And I don't hold it against a coach when he tries a rotation that doesn't work, so long as he keeps trying to find one that does work. And what I feel like has happened a lot of times with us is he'll ride a guy who's succeeded for him in the past, and then he starts failing, and he plays him a bit too long. Kevin has an exceptionally long leash. And for whatever his justification is, whether he thinks he needs to play his way out of this funk, it's not happening. And it's gotten to the point where it's detrimental enough. That 20-0 run by the Grizzlies, that was some horrific basketball from our bench unit. It was causing me to lose faith in general. I am usually the guy who watches to the end of the game because I've seen this Cavs team enough to know they can come back even if they're down double-digit points. But watching that 20-point run, I started to question whether the Cavs were even able to hang with this team, period. Now, thank God that they dug it out. To the Grizzlies' credit, Some of their bench performers. Santi Aldama was awesome tonight. Three three three-pointers in the first half. And then in the second half, he changed it up. He was attacking the basket. He finished with 16 points on six of eight shooting. And I think he went between his legs for a dunk on a dead ball. Didn't count, but it looked impressive. Desmond Bain is just a problem. It's unbelievable, really. And it's hard to complain about a Coro on a night like tonight, but knowing that Desmond Bain was there in that draft and seeing what he has developed into, he was an upperclassman at the time. And people were like, well, you know, he's not super athletic. He's not going to develop much more, similar to what we heard with Obi Toppin. And look at him now. My God, this guy's game is just incredible. A complete sniper. And he knocked down five three-pointers, 25 points, four rebounds, four assists. I didn't think Morant was particularly loud tonight. And I know by his standards, he wasn't. He still had 24 points and eight assists, which seems a a bit surprising in some regards, but he missed all of his outside looks. Dylan Brooks went 0 for 5 from outside the arc. And the bench outside of Aldama, I didn't feel like anyone was super problematic, except that Brandon Clark was able to generate a lot of second chance points. There was, I mean, they had almost four times as many second chance points. It was 17 to 4. At one point in favor of the Grizzlies, Brandon Clark was a big part of that. Four offensive rebounds for him. 
I felt very good with the starting units minutes out of the Cavaliers. And it has to make you feel like without, and this is a moral victory thing. And yes, I am fatigued a bit by the concept of trying to find solace in things that don't come with W's on the board because the Cavaliers are slipping in the standings in the Eastern Conference. Last night, we saw the Philadelphia 76ers just lay it to the Los Angeles Clippers. And now they sit in the third seed. And despite the fact that the Brooklyn Nets have lost three in a row, with the Cavs having lost this one and then losing the one to the Timberwolves, we could be in the fourth seed here. Instead, now fortunately, Durant's out, so I do feel pretty confident that the Cavs can leap over the Nets. But it's frustrating to leave a very winnable game on the table. So there were a lot of highlight moments. I even thought Lamar Stevens, it's a very quiet stat line, five points, four rebounds. But he banged down an important three. His second shot was a foot on the line. So he very well could have been two for two from outside the arc. And if I told you that Isaac Okoro and Lamar Stevens would be six for six from outside the arc, if not for one foot on the line from Lamar Stevens, that's pretty damn good. You wipe out the guys who were just absolute zeros. Now, Ricky Rubio struggled. I'm not going to ride too hard on him. He's just back off injury. Only played 12 minutes tonight. He's rusty. It just happened to be a bad night to have a rusty Ricky because we didn't have Donovan Mitchell. These guys deserve all the credit in the world for fighting back. They could have just given in in that second quarter. This would be a game that most of the fan base and the media would forgive them for. It's against a great team in the West, one of the best teams in the NBA, who has an incredible home record. Now they sit at 20-3 and at home, the only one better than them, the Denver Nuggets, who's just a half game up in the Western Conference. So it could have been a statement win for the Cavs, but instead we have to look ahead to Milwaukee and hope that we can upend what is now the two seed in the Eastern Conference and leap over the Brooklyn Nets to get back in a position where we would have home court advantage in the first round. Now, it's an interesting spot to be in for the Cavaliers because I've heard Simmons on his podcast, and let me see if I can pull up the audio here. Okay, this is actually from the low post. He was talking about... The Celtics. He was talking about the Cavs, but in the context of he doesn't want anything to do with them as a Celtics fan in the playoffs. And this is what he had to say. I think Cleveland is, I'm very concerned of Cleveland being in the four spot and that being a second round matchup. Like I I watched the Portland game last night. I just, I just love Garland. He had basically the game clinching alley-oop. He's so competitive. Like there's just certain guys like Mitch, he threw it to Mitchell. Any sort of, is there an alpha dog thing? Or is he cool with how this whole Mitchell thing is going? Who knows? But you certainly don't sit on the court. And he was just so happy and so fired up. And I just think that team, there's a competitiveness to that team that I think is going to be a real problem in the playoffs. You go through, and I don't know what they're going to do about the Levert, whatever they're going to do with that three spot in crunch time. But all those dudes, even Kevin Love, like those guys, they're like experienced dudes who care about basketball the right way. And I don't want to see them in a round two. So those comments were from several days ago, before Isaac Okoro put forth the greatest effort that we've ever seen in NBA history since Donovan Mitchell's 71 points. But it is nice to hear that he's afraid of the Cavs. It got me thinking about, well, what would I want to see? Give me the two or three seed. And... Slide the 76ers down to the fourth seed. I want them to have to go through the Boston Celtics in the second round. I do not want anything to do with playoff and Bede and Harden, who will probably live at the line. I don't want to play the Celtics for obvious reasons. They're a very good team, despite the fact the Cavs beat them twice. I would take my chances 
with Milwaukee or Brooklyn. I think I would choose Brooklyn. I know that sounds crazy. Durant's amazing. Kyrie has, was amazing with the Cavs in his playoff runs, but they're less prone to go to the rim again and again and again. I think you'd have a better chance of maybe keeping them off the foul line than you would a guy like Embiid who could force our bigs out of the game with foul trouble. Now, he stunk the first time we played them this season. Only scored 16 points, but that seemed like an anomaly. I could not believe the production that he put forth in that first game this year. I don't think you can expect to replicate that. And Giannis is just a problem in general, but that team doesn't seem to be quite as good as they were last year in terms of both sides of the ball and the role players. And Middleton is who knows with his help. Drew Holiday's amazing. I mean, they dusted the Raptors without Giannis. Giannis is expected to be back by this weekend, by the way, for the Cavs matchup. So unfortunately, we are not one of the teams that will probably get to avoid him on the schedule. But the Warriors are up next. And one more thing I wanted to touch on. A clip that has been circulating on YouTube, on Twitter. It's of John Wall, current Clippers player, on a podcast discussing best team that had a chance. The best Wizards team he was on that had a chance to win it all. And his answer, if I'm bringing this up on a Cavs podcast, you can guess that it was one that I found upsetting. Best team that had a chance. In D.C.? Yeah. At 16-17? We was going to beat the shot of Braun. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you do interview anybody from the Cavs, there was one team they did not want to see on the East. Which y'all? They did not want to see us. And they didn't see you, John Wall. And why is that? Well, maybe it's because in Game 7, against the Boston Celtics, the number one seed who dipped you before the conference finals, you shot 8 for 23. <laughs> one for 8 from three-point land. You weren't even in that game. So I know that you're supremely confident. But before you take on LeBron James... Maybe tackle Isaiah Thomas. I mean, he's basically a LeBron James equivalent player, right? And you did so good stopping him. I'm sure you would have clamped up Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, and Kevin Love. Light work, as they say. But let's hear what made you so confident about your ability to, quote, beat the shit out of LeBron and the Cavs. They not want to see us. Me and Kyrie, we matching up. Mm -hmm. I'm taking Brad over JR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got Bron over Trevor Reese. I'm taking, you know who. Mm Mm-hmm. Hold up. Trevor Ariza wasn't even on the team in 2016-2017. He was a Wizards player in 2013-2014, before LeBron came back to Cleveland, and in 2018-2019, after LeBron had already departed. For all the confidence he has in this roster, he doesn't even remember it. But let's let him keep going. Kevin Love and, Kevin Love and Marky Morris. I'm taking Kevin Love, but Marky Morris can shoot threes and yeah, post yeah. up. Yeah. I'm taking Gortat over Tristan Thompson. Yeah. Oh, for sure. They're the same player. And our yeah. bench was deeper than theirs. I don't take issue with Wall saying that he thinks he's better than Kyrie or that they cancel each other out. That's ego, of course, but you're not going to diminish yourself. And at least statistically, he has a case. Beal over J.R. Smith? Absolutely. LeBron over a guy not on your roster? Absolutely. Kevin Love over Markeith Morris with some kind of qualifier, whatever. As long as you acknowledge Kevin Love, we're good. And if you want Gortat over Tristan Thompson, I'd say it's basically a wash. But how does the summation of those five head-to-head comparisons equal Wizards are better to you? If you want to say Kyrie Irving, an apple, John Wall, an apple, fine. If you want to say Marcin Gortat and Tristan Thompson, potato, potato, fine. But what about the distance 
between LeBron James and Otto Porter Jr., who slipped your mind? Is that a 1A, 1B situation to you? Or is LeBron James a filet mignon in this food comparison, whereas Otto Porter Jr. is just a homeless man peeing directly into your mouth? Drink this homeless guy's urine. But please, don't let reality stop you. Continue the lies, John. We had Bogey, um, Kelly Oubre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Kelly was playing well that year, he too. Was. He was. That's when he was coming to himself. These two fucking guys on the podcast. Like, th- this is why people need to call you on your shit. These two should have been saying, hold up. Explain to me then what you were going to do with LeBron after Isaiah Thomas torched you. How were you going to stop him? But they're just egging him on as he's spinning this completely delusional fucking yarn. And that's to say nothing about the shit that they're co-signing. Kelly Oubre was not coming into his own. He played 15 minutes a game and averaged less than six points a game. Do you know how many minutes Kelly Oubre logged in that pivotal game seven that the Wizards lost against the Celtics? I mean, a man coming into his own must have played a big part in that, right? Now, how do we handle six seconds? Should I round it up to a minute or does it count as zero? Fuck out of here with that. Then you look at every game we played that year, it was always a one, two point game. This probably won't come as a surprise to you, but the games were not one to two point affairs. The Cavaliers won a game by nine points. The Wizards won a game by 12 points. And the Cavaliers won an overtime game by five points. That year, and then the year I broke my hand against the Hawks, Mm -hmm. we was going to play the Cavs again. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, John. But this is what irritates me about the whole thing. I don't hate John Wall as a person. I hate when these people rewrite history. With a a KG, well, the Celtics broke LeBron. And and John Wall said, well, we would have broke. It gives this illusion that people weren't intimidated or afraid of LeBron when, in fact, he dominated them. And they can lie to themselves all they want and say that, oh, no, he was just a normal player. Like, we knew if we if we could put a good enough game plan together, we would be... No, he dominated the East. The distance between him and the 2016-27 Wizards was a fucking canyon. And I won't hear otherwise. And that's all I got to say. Thank you for listening to the Fear the Fro podcast. Thank you for subscribing leaving the ratings, doing all of that, sharing it, telling your Cavalier fan friends, and bringing any and all who love the Cavs to the Fear the Fro podcast. I'm Bob Schmidt, voice of Fox Sports Radio. Another episode coming soon. Levert, live to Mobley. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.